Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is June 30th, 2020, and I'm speaking with Sebastian Hilriano, who studies the history of scientific racial conceptions in Latin America and the Global South. Thank you for joining us, Sebastian. I'm delighted to be here. Sebastian, in the middle of the 20th century, there was an effort to produce a scientific basis for being anti-racist. Can you tell us the main points of that development? Yes, I'd be glad to. So after decades of openly racist research, as exemplified by the eugenics movement and its influence on Nazi policies in Germany, scientific experts after World War II attempted to address this legacy of scientific racism by narrowing the definition of race so that it would only be used in very technical and precise ways that they deemed appropriate. So from this very circumscribed standpoint, they argued that racism is not supported by science and that scientific studies of human variation are in fact anti-racist. And the most striking example of this kind of initiative are the statements on race that were produced by UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. This was an organization that produced two statements on race that were drafted by separate committees of scientists, one in 1950 and one in 1951. And these were statements that generated a lot of controversy and that generated a lot of debate between scientists from different disciplines, but that were united by their common intent to present the incontrovertible facts about race and human variation that scientists were supposed to have agreed upon, and with the aim of undermining the kinds of ideologies and ways of thinking that had accorded the eugenics movement and the Holocaust. So generally speaking, these statements emphasized the unity of the human species. They emphasized the idea that race is not a very meaningful or a very accurate way of sorting human differences. They also tended to emphasize that human differences are the product of contingent evolutionary circumstances and that human nature is quite malleable and undergoing constant change. So really it was a kind of attempt or a kind of project of framing questions of race and racism from a quite technical vantage point. And I would argue that as a result, anti-racist scientists ended up identifying bad science and erroneous ideologies as being the root causes of racism. So instead of linking racism to political and economic systems and challenging the structures of those systems, mid-century anti-racism ended up focusing on these kinds of educational programs where scientists were attempting to communicate their ideas and findings and trying to change people's attitudes and ideas about race. How did this new group of anti-racist social scientists prefer to talk about human variation? Yeah, so, so first I would point out that there were scientists from several disciplines that were involved in the kinds of anti-racist projects that I just described. And this was part of the reason why they generated so much debate and controversy. So the first UNESCO statement, the 1950 statement, was drafted primarily by a committee of social scientists and anthropologists and sociologists social psychologists who ended up producing a statement that had quite a bit to say about the genetic variation and the physical anthropology 
of humans and their differences, which is why a lot of geneticists and physical anthropologists ended up objecting to the statement and arguing for the production of a second one. So in my work, I point out that it was actually social scientists who were most actively involved in the kind of anti-racist work that institutions like UNESCO were doing in this period. And the social scientists who were involved in this work tended to be quite established scholars at this point in their careers. They were sort of mid-career scholars who had trained in an earlier moment in the 1920s and 30s, the period between the two world wars. And many of these social scientists, especially some of the anthropologists who were involved with this UNESCO work, people like Claude Lévy-Strauss, Alfred Neco, and Michel Loris, were scholars who had trained in French institutions that had close ties to the colonial administration of France and who spent formative parts of their careers in South America, in the French Caribbean, in West Africa, doing work that was largely under the rubric of France in a colonial civilizing mission. There was also another group of social scientists who were closely involved with UNESCO's work who came from South American and Central American institutions, people like the Brazilian anthropologist and physician Arthur Ramos and the Spanish-Mexican physical anthropologist Juan Comas. And these were people who were quite closely aligned with state projects that were geared towards the assimilation of Afro-descendant and indigenous groups. So generally speaking, these anti-racist social scientists who were involved with UNESCO's anti-racist work were interested in the plasticity of human variation. They were very much interested in studying the ways that human groups were shaped by geographic, climatic, cultural, and socioeconomic forces. And they were very much interested as well in the technological and economic differences between different cultures and would often talk about different levels of civilizational attainment or achievement and how these reflected different trajectories of social evolution. So there's a real irony here, because even as they were drafting anti-racist statements and doing anti-racist work, many of these social scientists were quite comfortable using terms like backwards or primitive to describe non-European peoples, and would often resort to explanations that didn't have anything to do with biological or hereditary differences, but instead cited a cultural inferiority or a primitive mentality as the reason why there were these differences between civilizations, why some were backwards as opposed to others. So if they switch from biological talk to the kind of language you just described, can we understand these new ways of talking about human variation as clearly non-racial or post-racial? So the easy answer to that question is no. But of course, it's more complicated. And I think it's probably worth unpacking what the non-racial or the post-racial might be. So I mean, I suppose at a kind of discursive level, at the level of language and concepts, there was very much a concerted effort to go beyond race in the sense that many scientists from both the biological sciences and the social sciences argued that the term race should be eliminated from science. It should be replaced with other concepts like populations or ethnic groups. So there was a post-racial move in that sense, or a gesture towards a post-racial. And in another way, 
there was also an attempt to understand what the post-racial would look like in a sociological sense. In this time period, UNESCO sponsored a lot of race relations research, research that was done from the perspective of sociology and social psychology. They sponsored a lot of race relations research in places like Brazil and Hawaii, places that were thought of at this time as racial paradises, places where race prejudice didn't exist. So social scientists turned to places like Brazil and Hawaii with the hopes of understanding or finding a model for a society that had successfully reconciled its different racial groups and had created a society where racism didn't exist. But what's really interesting about the studies that UNESCO sponsored is that they ended up showing quite the opposite. So there was a cycle of studies that came out shortly after the UNESCO statements on race that were conducted in various parts of Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in Rio de Janeiro, and Bahia, and that were conducted by a younger generation of Brazilian scholars who went on to become quite influential in their own right, people like Noristan Fernandes and Jorge Bastide and others, who conducted studies that showed that even though there was a culture of amicability and friendliness, and even though people in their day-to-day lives didn't necessarily express sentiments of overt hostility and racism towards each other, there was nevertheless a kind of a racial stratification at play in Brazilian society. What these studies ended up showing is that Brazilian society was very much divided in social and economic terms at a structural level along racial lines, and that this was a byproduct of slavery, which was abolished very late in Brazil, only at the very end of the 19th century. So I would say there was a real kind of investment in the post-racial in this moment, but it was very quickly also shown to be illusory by the empirical studies that were conducted in this time period. So if we move the clock forward, Sebastian, do you have a sense of whether or how this history of scientific racial concepts that you've been telling us about, how this history is relevant to our contemporary situation and our debates about race? Yeah, you know, it's been a really inspiring moment in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that I take away from this period that I've been studying and that I think speaks to some of the things that are going on now is the importance of studying anti-racism with the same critical perspective as we would study racism. So I think a lot of what I've learned and a lot of what I think we can learn by studying the history of anti-racism is that anti-racism has been defined in many different ways that anti-racism has attached itself to different political projects. And that if we look at this moment after World War II and the kind of work that was done through international organizations like UNESCO, we see a form of anti-racism that is very closely aligned with the kind of capitalist and developmentalist ideals of the United Nations system and political elites in many different parts of the world. And it's one that, not surprisingly, focused on or defined racism as a kind of ideological aberration that could be dismantled through changes in language or through better education, and that therefore kind of left the structural and systemic bases of racism intact. 
So what I find really interesting about our current moment from the vantage of this kind of history is that I think we really are seeing a really dynamic bottom-up movement that's led by activists and that is very much asking us to really confront the structural and systemic bases of racism and that is asking us to go beyond a formalized institutional response or go beyond the politics of just producing statement after statement. So I think studying the history of anti-racism can also teach us a lot about the ways in which anti-racist projects can be narrowed and defined in strategic ways in order to maintain the status quo. Sebastian, thank you very much for sharing your perspectives and your work with us. Thank you very much, Papa. It was my pleasure.